Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and with me, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Scott. You know, it is the dreaded exam season is upon us, so uh, I'm, you know, using this podcast as a way to sort of break the malaise of studying for my exams, but luckily, I only have three this time around, so uh, this time... Next week, I'll be just about getting ready to, to head home and then head on to Houston uh, not long after that for our uh, big uh, Schmodown live that we're going to. Oh, yeah. I can't believe I can't believe it's less than a month away. Of course, I've been distracted before that comes with, you know, in game, which we'll be talking about on. I, I mean, I guess at the time of this episode drops, we'll have already talked about it. Uh, but that and then you're Scott, talking you know, about my, the you're talking about the Samuel Beckett play in game, right? Just to be clear. Correct. Wait. Yeah. Is there something else? That no, no, no. I mean, I didn't think that there was. I just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page. Yeah, Sam Beckett, famous, famous superhero writer. So, yes. you know, he was doing this way before Marvel was. So, yeah, no. So we'll have already talked about that. And then, you know, Scott, that I'm very excited about Detective Pikachu, which will be dropping before our Houston trip as well. So I've got some distractions, but thoroughly looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a fun month of May for sure. All right. This episode, though, has been about two months in the making, but it's finally happening. Happening With us today, we have a very special guest for our very special episode, and he is the winner of our Some Like It's Got Oscar pool competition. He's a fellow NESCAC alum, though admittedly from my alma mater's bitter rival, uh, and he's also a co-worker of mine who has been a regular follower and contributor to the podcast, not to mention regularly discussing with me his thoughts on some of the movies that we cover, which are always very insightful and very interesting, usually bringing up points that we failed to mention or, or talk about themes that, you know, maybe he disagreed with our takes on them and, you know, always appreciate stuff like that. So with us today, without further ado, we have Jeremy Rubel. Jeremy, congratulations on your outstanding Oscar picks to get you to the big stage. How are you doing today? Great to be here, Scott. Uh, longtime fan of the show, and it's really great to be on. Awesome. Well, as our listeners may know, by being the top performer in our Oscar pool, Jeremy got to pick one movie for us to cover on the podcast and then discuss it with us. And he chose a classic for us to discuss, a black and white masterpiece written and directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz and starring Betty Davis and Baxter, George Sanders and Celeste Holman, featuring countless others, including a brief cameo from a then relatively unknown Marilyn Monroe. And All About Eve is the name of that movie. It was nominated for 14 Academy Awards. It won six, and it follows the story of a highly regarded Broadway actress, Margot Shanning, played by Davis, and one of her ambitious young fans, Eve Harrington, played by Baxter, who manages to insinuate herself into her idol's day-to-day life and inner circle, which includes famous director and Margot's lover, Bill Sampson, played by Gary Merrill, acclaimed playwright Lloyd Richards, played by Hugh Marlowe, and finally, the latter's wife, Karen, played by Celeste Holm. Eve's presence eventually becomes a threat to Margot's career and her personal relationships with the ones closest to her and becomes a tale of ambition, decline, and an analysis of how far some are willing to go to cling on to the fame they aspire to or gain the fame they want to achieve. 
Jeremy, we'll start with you first. You chose this movie, so I take it this movie, you know, you either think very highly of it or it's near and dear to your heart. So why don't we start with you? You picked this movie at a high level. Why did you pick it? And what do you think of it? Great question, Scott. I picked this movie because it's uh, my all-time favorite movie. Um, but actually, before we go on, I just wanted to admit to you real quick on that uh, Oscars pool, totally copied all of the New York Times picks. So <laughs> I'm really pleased to have won the competition, but not really sure who else entered it. Uh, you know, I, I probably had pretty mainstream picks there. But on well, all, you know, you know, you got to say that that's that's an, a perfect example of how people probably shouldn't bet against the stock market. So <laughs> I picked all of the favorites. Just wanted to admit that for the world uh, before we went any further. But All About Eve has been a longtime favorite movie uh, for me. I think that the uh, writing is extremely sharp. It has uh, many very quotable lines, including a very famous line, buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy night. Uh, the performances are very sharp. And I think it's a, a strong play about aging and ambition and what it takes to be a woman who succeeds in the theater and I guess in uh, other areas of life as well. Awesome. Scott, what do you think about that? Yeah. Well, you know, this is a movie that I've always been familiar with just because, you know, we're into movies. Like it's hard to not know about this movie. It always comes up, especially in Oscar season as, because it's still um, is tied with um, a couple other movies for the most Oscar nominations uh, for a single film. But you know, I had never gotten around to watching it for whatever reason. And, you know, I have to say, I have to raise my hand and say that was a mistake because having watched it, having watched it now, it's, I mean, it's rightfully considered a classic. I think um, it has earned its status uh, as, you know, one of the great black and white Hollywood masterpieces. Um, and yeah, I think you said it, Jeremy, the script is sharp. Uh, sharp, I think is the perfect word. I said uh, when I re- reviewed this on Letterboxd that you could cut down a tree with this script. It's so sharp. I think it is so savage in some of the, uh, you know, put downs and insults and, you know, just burns that all, really all of the characters lay down on each other. You know, Margot, I think, is one who, uh, you know, is very acid tongue, but particularly Addison as well, the George Sanders character. And George Sanders, of course, did win an Academy Award for his performance in the movie. And I think that is the strong point of the movie. But yeah, I think there's definitely some interesting themes here. I, I really did couldn't help but think about A Star is Born in a way when I watched this movie, because while they, you know, that this movie is probably is, is probably you could call it a meaner version of A Star is Born. I think there's a lot of similar ideas in terms of, you know, you have one person who is at the peak of their career at the start of the movie with Margot Channing. And then you have someone who is not uh, in Eve who is really just a fan at the beginning of the movie. Uh, then, you know, over the course of this movie, uh, you watch as sort of they reverse positions and Eve really supplants Margot as like the, you know, premier actress of the time. And obviously there's a lot more deception and conniving to the way that uh, Eve is able to do that than, you know, goes on in A Star is Born. But I think that the two movies would probably be an interesting double feature to watch uh, with each other because I think there are some similar things going on. But yeah, this is a classic for a reason, and I'm glad we got the opportunity to watch it. I couldn't agree more. I think that it's so. This is another movie. Just, just you know, to your point, Scott, having heard of it, knowing how famous it was and how renowned it was, never having watched it myself, and definitely the thing that sticks out, at least now, you know, I, obviously it's impossible to go back to 1950 and 
and understand how it fit into the, you know, the context of the of the entertainment landscape then. But you just don't get scripts like this even more. I mean, I know Aaron Sorkin, Scott, one of our favorite uh, screenwriters, you know, of, of this era, you know, I would say he's maybe the closest that you can get to writing a script like this. And even his scripts are not not necessarily not as sharp, but not as not as mean, incisive as as a uh, witty in terms of put downs that you just don't get that exact same level. You get flavors of it, but nothing as pervasive as, as what you get throughout the two hour, 20 minute runtime of this movie. And and it really sticks out from a lot of the, the frankly like benign and, and sometimes even bland scripts that we see in so many of the movies that, that we watch for, you know, our normal episodes of the podcast. And so for me, that's what stuck out the most. And then these performances across mm-hmm. the board are outstanding. You know, I'm glad you mentioned George Sanders. He managed to escape my opening primer for our discussion. But he, of course, like you mentioned, won the Academy Award and is one of the top bills in this movie for a reason. And his performance as Addison DeWitt is is a very memorable one. In, in terms of, of themes and what, and what this movie means, this, I think A Star is Born is such an interesting comparison. It definitely was on my mind as I watched it as well. And I don't know if it's a comparison of these two industries of the music business versus the acting business, but it definitely is a huge contrast about how, you know, you feel like a star is born as a movie about supporting and lifting another person up into, into stardom, even as another person declines. This is almost the exact opposite where you, 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 these two people are fighting tooth and nail to try to get every inch in this, in their careers. And one comes out on top over the other by the end of the movie. And I think that's such an, I don't know if that's a statement about, again, these two separate industries or what that might be, but this is a movie almost about tearing other people down rather than lifting them up. And I, and I find that to be a really interesting comparison as well. Yeah. And an, another film from last year's batch of Oscar films that I think this movie is very similar to is The Favorite. Yeah. And in fact, the directors of The Favorite said that they were specifically inspired by uh, this film all about Eve. Yeah, I can definitely see that. No, for for sure. It's I can almost see it even more now that I'm thinking about it. And it totally makes sense that, you know, you have these two, you know, you have Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone's characters vine rather than the fame and the attention that, you know, the the New York City, you know, play going communities uh, give. Instead, it's the just the attention and, and uh, favor of you know, Queen Anne. So that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Scott, to your point, I think that. This could, you know, you could argue that this is a more realistic uh, view of sort of what it takes to make it in the, you know, one one of these uh, industries. Because I think A Star Is Born kind of has the idea that oh, you can make it through your own talent, right? It's you know just by being by having that voice. That's how Lady Gaga makes it in A Star Is Born. But here it's like you could be the most talented actress in the world, but you got to do some other stuff. You got to claw your way. You have to be deceptive uh, if you want to make it to the top. So, you know, it, it's definitely a more cynical view, but I don't know that I would say it's a less realistic one. I think that there's so many parallels uh, that you could draw to so many different movies. I mean, anytime that you have uh, women being ambitious, I always think back to this movie because of that mm-hmm. I saw in high school and really serves as foundation for me. I often think about Mean Girls in comparison to this film. Another movie about uh, women, uh, you know, fighting for their place in a social circle. Yeah. It really sets out a lot of basic and interesting themes in that way. That's such an interesting point about Mean Girls. I, 
that used to be a movie that I'd watch every year, and, I, and that movie never crossed my mind when I was watching this movie. But now that I'm thinking about it, it's it's definitely there. Maybe we'll circle back and talk about all these comparisons and and definitely some of these themes that we've already mentioned a little bit later on in our discussion. But I'd love to just kind of zero in a little bit on some of these acting performances, and no better place to start with the titular role since uh, this movie is all about Eve, and that's Eve Harrington played by Ann Baxter. Guys, let's go to Jeremy first. Eve Harrington. Ann Baxter. Is this an iconic performance for you? Is it Oscar worthy? Just give me your thoughts. I think this is a really great performance uh, by Ann Baxter. A few things to say. One is I love what Ann Baxter does with her voice throughout this film. Almost the entire film, she speaks in this sweet voice as if she's really putting it on to try to get the uh, attention, the charm, uh, you know, the love and devotion of all of the people that she's trying to win over by faking them over. And then in just a couple of spots, her character really, really sinks in. She lowers the register of her voice in just a couple of spots when she's uh, talking to uh, Karen and she's blackmailing her in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, she drops her voice when she is dressing down Phoebe at the end of the movie. She talks in this lower register and real contrast to the sweet voice that she uses throughout the film as if you can really finally get to the base of her character. I think that Eve is a kind of universal type. She is in many ways a kind of flat character. You know, she is uh, pure ambition, pure beauty, pure youth. And I think that really sets up for a nice contrast with her counterpart in the film in Betty Davis playing Margot Channing. I think you kind of nailed it with what makes this performance so nice is that you never suspect, uh, you know, what's really going on in terms of, uh, you know, that Eve is plotting really with every single move that she makes because of Ann Baxter's performance, because, right, the things she does with her voice, just the way she carries herself throughout the movie uh, and I think one interesting thing that Mankiewicz does is that we never actually see Eve acting in the movie. Um, and I think that that uh, helps build that that tension of, you know, we don't really see the great actress that she is because she's actually playing a role really throughout the whole movie. Uh, we just don't realize it. And so I think by, by not showing her um, ever performing, we're left to wonder, you know, how could she be such a great actress? She doesn't seem like it. But it's kind of duping us in the process. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a clever thing that the movie does. It, you know, we're, we're kind of duped in the same way that Margot is because of the way that Ann Baxter plays this role. Um, and yeah, it's a great performance. I think the point about, you know, the, the her vocal intonations throughout the film and when, you know, you, know, you mentioned that the register, you know, her, the register of her voice drops, the tone drops when she's maybe a little bit more serious or, you know, talking business, one might even say, uh, being a little bit more austere. I think that that's a great point. I think that's definitely the kind of the hallmark of this role. You get that sweet, almost venomous, uh, high-pitched voice when she's trying to insinuate herself into the life of these people and, and make that good impression, just, you know, be sweet, harmless Eve. And then you do get those moments and scenes where you get a complete understanding of exactly who this character is. I think that one of one of those moments is when she's in the hotel, the hotel room with Addison towards the end of the movie. 
I think that that's one of one of my favorite scenes. And, you know, when we mentioned the script earlier, that's one of those scenes where it's just absolutely nothing but sharp barbs back and forth between the two of them. And of course, you know, Addison ultimately ultimately wins that duel because he just gets the upper hand. He, you know, she made some mistakes in some earlier conversations with him and, and gave him more information that she wanted to about herself. And that left her vulnerable. And I think that the way that she portrays, or I should say attempts to show a lack of vulnerability in this movie and then breaking down in certain moments. I think that is another hallmark of this performance. You get, you know, all you get is this sweet, you know, veneer throughout most of the movie. And then there are moments where she shows her true colors, but also moments where that veneer is gone. And and, and that most commonly happens when she's interacting with Addison because he's sharper than the other people. He is able to, understand who she is more quickly than you know it, it, pretty much anyone else Margot, karen you know bill and lloyd she, you know he's faster to get to understand who she is um than than they are and ultimately it, it i think it's wonderful to see that veneer come down and and see those the the walls come down around her and then those moments not only just in terms of her voice dropping but also her her guard dropping altogether because she's undone by by these conversations and, and the wit of Addison. I find that well, one you can probably have a conversation about what that means for you know you mentioned Jeremy about what it means for women women being successful and also maybe what it means as Addison as a person, but also it's it's a great performance in, in my book. No better than to move on to her counterpart, Jeremy. You already mentioned her when you were talking about how it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition uh, between Eve and Margot. But would love to talk now more about Margot and, and of course, re- reference Eve as you will when you talk about her if you, if it's a good reference point. But what did you think of Betty Davis in the in this role as you know the renowned Margot Shannon? Betty Davis is obviously a longtime great actress in uh, you know several decades of her film career. Uh, Roger Ebert described this performance as a capstone uh, to her career, one of her all-time great performances, and I think that he totally nails it. Betty Davis smokes throughout the film. Uh, It really is a a great accent to her character as this uh, witty, aging starlet of the theater, an all-time great actress, And she is trying to come to terms with her age. She's trying to come to terms with her ambition and balancing that against what it means in 10 years when she'll no longer be able to play uh, the young uh, 20-something characters that uh, Lloyd writes for her as the the screenwriter. Uh, You know, she's trying to balance uh, her love for Bill against uh, her ambition in the theater and trying to come up against... uh, this newcomer in Eve Harrington. Just again, I love the way that she smokes in this film. It really like is a great call to, uh, you know, an earlier time in America in the 1950s when smoking was cool, when uh, it was actually the hero of the film that smoked instead of, uh, you know, villains and Russians and Arabs uh, in a sinister way. I kind of love the the callback nature of it. Yeah, I think that um, you know, by contrast to Eve's uh, to Ann Baxter's performance as Eve, I think that we almost believe her too much as this you know famed thespian, this great actress Margot Channing, because everything about this performance is theatrical, right? Even off the stage, like everything is a performance, and I think 
you know, that's why over the course of the film, she becomes more bitter and more jaded, um, you know, not just because she's losing her place to Eve, but because she kind of comes to terms with the fact that she doesn't really know who she is uh, because, you know, she's let this uh, desire to get to the top really consume everything that she does. Um, and, you know, she's let the bitter cynicism of the playwriting world that she's, you know, an intimate part of really overcome every part of her. Um, and so, yeah, you know, an interesting thing is that, uh, you know, you brought up the favorite and I think there was a, a talks this year in the Oscars about how uh, Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone kind of canceled each other out because they were both nominated in the supporting actress performance. And actually, if you look you know, back into the history surrounding this movie, a lot of people think that Ann Baxter and Betty Davis, who are both nominated in the lead actress category, kind of canceled each other out. And that's why neither one of them ended up getting the award. Although I think, you know, a lot of people feel nowadays, at least that Betty Davis probably might have been the more deserving performance. But it's interesting to just look back at that and think, you know, that, that it was happening this year, but it was also happening, you know, 65 years ago. The contrast between Margot and Eve is a really interesting one. I think that Eve is painted out to be a flat character, a type, whereas Margot is made out to be a very well-rounded character. I think Eve has a kind of naked ambition that overrides any other aspect of her quality. I think in arguments mm -hmm. between Bill and Margot uh, at the beginning of that party scene, Bill continues to describe Eve just as a series of adjectives, right? Setting up her as a type rather than a really developed person. In contrast, we see Margot really grapple with an internal character struggle over the course of the film. Margot is trying to come to terms with her aging and how to balance career versus family. She's always put career first up to this point in her life. And then over the course of the film, she makes a pretty radical decision. She decides, I'm not going to pursue this new hot spot in the new uh, play that Lloyd writes, but instead I'm going to turn down the part. And instead I'm going to get married to Bill, you know, a choice that she had never made before. She had always put off marriage in favor of her career. So I think it's a pretty interesting character change for uh, Margot. And Eve just has this single-minded ambition. I mean, she achieves her objective, but I don't think she really develops as a character. She's very flat. And I kind of like that. I like that she's a universal type and serves as this contrast to a much uh, richer character in Betty Davis's Margot. Yeah, I, I think that's actually a really good point because something else is that we never really learn about the motivations behind Eve's actions a lot. It really is just like you said, that naked ambition. It's she wants to get to the top and you kind of think, you know, that that's pro that, you know, she's probably much like Margot was at a younger age. I mean, it, and obviously they're playing into that idea at the end as well. When Phoebe comes in that, you know, sort of history is going to keep repeating itself. The cycle is going to keep uh, repeating itself. And so maybe, yeah, like you said, there's that idea there that, you know, as you age, um, as you start to understand your position more in this world, um, then, you know, you become more well-rounded. Um, and I think that's what we see with the contrast in the two characters. And so I think setting up the contrast between the two characters, 
you know, we're meant to see Eve as the villain in this film and Margot as the hero. But you make this great point, Scott, about how the cycle continues to repeat itself. Anyone who is in a position of fame and fortune in the theater must have gotten there through, uh, you know, we're, we're led to believe in this world scheming uh, of some sort or another, some level of cynicism to be able to work yourself in a Machiavellian way to the top. And at the start of the film, Margot is obviously on top. And so we see her as the hero, you know, defending what is rightfully hers from Eve, who is, you know, a bad, cynical, mean person. But I think a really interesting way to read this film, to flip it on its head, is to say, maybe Eve is totally justified in pursuing a spot on the top, a spot in the headlights on Broadway, right? Why does Margot deserve this? Maybe looking back into Margot's career, she also did the same sort of things and is not uh, justified in having this spot. What is so bad about trying to be ambitious and trying to pursue uh, fame and fortune? Yeah, no, I, I actually have a lot of thoughts about this because I, I found it interesting where I totally agree that Eve is definitely the one portrayed as, as a villain, or at least of, of sorts, right, in in this movie. However, I never really got the feeling that Margot was necessarily a hero in this movie either. And so I think, Jeremy, at least, you know, when I was viewing this movie, your point about maybe this movie is questioning what's so bad about being ambitious or or maybe more more generically, what does it mean to be ambitious or what does that mean for how does how society interprets you? I think that the movie does give it definitely does give it a negative spin, but I think that also may be like playing into our stereotypes and feeding into that less than necessarily making a judgment on its own. And so for me, it's one of those things where throughout the course of the movie, you, you almost have to, or at least I almost had to remind myself that what Eve is doing Although maybe she's doing some less than nice things to people who maybe thought that they were friends with each other or like they, at least that they thought she was friends with them. You know, maybe she's using them and maybe there's some statement about using people. But I don't know if there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with being ambitious. And I actually don't think that Margot comes off as being all that great of a person. Like I didn't walk away from this movie thinking, wow, the fall, like the fall from grace of a hero, Margot Shannon. Like that's not something that I necessarily thought when I was watching the movie. And I think it's really interesting when you do have that final scene and, and the the question or at least the thought is posed that this is just a loop and that Margot was Eve before Eve, Eve is Eve, and then Phoebe will be the next Eve, Eve will be the next Margot. And I think that's it's such an interesting loop. Of course, we don't know how that story plays out. Having known where she comes from, that is Eve, maybe she doesn't let Phoebe become a version of herself and and usurp her in, in terms of fame and popularity. We just don't know the answer to that question. But the idea that people time after time will be ambitious and try to not, nece not necessarily use people, but insinuate themselves into someone's life to gain, you know, network, to gain connections, to gain fame in that way and use and ride the coattails, so to speak, of others' fame before they're able to step out on their own and, and stand in their own spotlight. I think that that's a really interesting statement about this movie uh, and less of a statement about a hero versus a villain for me. Although I can really see how this movie allows those stereotypes to be 
projected onto what's happening in this film. Yeah, I think that the you know what we're the the debate that we're having about hero versus villain is so hard because the writing of the movie is so strong and you can't pigeonhole the characters like that. They're much more three dimensional than that. But I'll be cynical about it. There aren't really heroes and villains. There there are a few real heroes and villains in real life. People who are all good or all bad. And Scott, it reminds me of when we talked about one of the first movies we ever talked about on this podcast, uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, I think had a similar thing going on with uh, characters who, uh, you know, you could debate the virtues and vices of them all day because they were just real people. And I think while on some level, you know, these people are in high society and they're uh, in the, in the you know, performance world, they're real people. And that's why, you know, we debate the, the complexity of them. And yeah, I think that this movie is more of a, societal critique that is really a critique of of either character because i don't think it's saying that to have ambition is a bad thing i think what it's saying is the things that society makes you do to achieve your ambition to achieve your goal are bad good let's talk about george sanders as addison dewitt yeah let's do that and you know feel free to also incorporate the other supporting men we mentioned them we have gary merrill who plays george sampson uh, sorry, Bill Sampson, <laughs> Gary Mer- Merrill, who plays Bill Sampson, and then also Hugh Marlowe, who plays Lloyd Richards, and that combined with George Sanders as Addison DeWitt is the male supporting cast. Feel free to start anywhere or, or talk about only one of them, whichever you like. Jeremy, go right ahead. I actually would love to start with Marilyn Monroe. Sure. No, let's do that. We can we can definitely do that. Marilyn Monroe. Then, you know, I mentioned she was relatively unknown. I think I might be Overselling it, I think she was completely. <laughs> I think it was her second major film uh, that she appeared in, and so she was very unknown at the time. Uh, I think that in the party scenes in which she appears, she does such an amazing job of stealing the show in the background with the way that she uses her eyes. She captures the light in a really incredible way. Uh, you know, she kind of plays a bimbo. I think I think that's the character that she was going to have. But it's a bimbo who says, mm-hmm. you know, words of wisdom uh, without really full full understanding of what she's even saying, uh, which is, you know, she's a kind of sage uh, in the in the things that she says. Um, and I, I think it's a really interesting comparison to Eve, right? Like Eve is using her feminine charms. Uh, and brains to try to manipulate herself to the top. And Marilyn Monroe's character is, you know, seemingly not very smart, but like doing the same kind of things to use her sexuality to try to get the spot by charming up the producer Max Fabian. Um, And so I think that's also a really nice contrast to the two main female characters in the film. And do you think that's a cultural critique of Hollywood versus Broadway and maybe, uh, or is it, or is it something else? Oh yeah, I guess, I guess that's a really good point, Scott. I think that it does really play a little bit on the contrast between Hollywood and Broadway. I think that uh, on some level they're saying throughout this film that Hollywood's a little bit uh, less intellectual than the theater. Uh you know, Bill makes a number of comments uh, as a director going out to Hollywood that, you know, it's kind of more average, more, you know, more, more, um, uh, more um, open to everyone, a sort of flat, 
a flatter, less nuanced intellectual world. Uh, and and uh, I think that contrast between Marilyn Monroe's more like nakedly sexual character and Eve's like real manipulative uh, Machiavellian character, you know, plays on that difference. Any more thoughts on Marilyn from either of you two? Yeah, I don't have too much to add, except I think that I, I really did uh, crack up at one um, part when she when they're at the uh, I forget whose house they're at. They're at the birthday party, I believe it is. And uh, for Bill and the wait, the butler walks by or whatever. And she says something about, oh, there's a waiter. And Addison's like, there, no, it's the butler. And she's like, well, what you know, he should be called a waiter or whatever. Or I should you know, we should. I don't even remember what it is, but it's something like, what if his name was actually Butler or something? And Addison is like, well, you have a point. It's an idiotic point, but it's a point. Um, and that just made me crack up. But yeah, I agree with, in terms of that actual performance, I agree with everything that uh, y'all said. Yeah, she has a lot of great lines. Addison tells her to go uh, talk to Max Fabian. And she says, why do they all look like sad rabbits? <laughs> I find it such an interesting critique because it, it feels like it's calling, you know, or at least it seems like at least it's a little bit demeaning of Hollywood. But this movie does come out of Hollywood. I mean, these people, I don't know if they necessarily made their names in Hollywood, but they certainly, were, you know, reach the peak of their stardom in Hollywood with all of these Oscar nominations, et cetera, et cetera. So I found that that point really interesting. And then I don't know if I have too much to add about Marilyn Monroe herself, but it was I didn't realize she was in this movie. And so when I saw her, I'm like, hmm, she looks familiar. Google the cast list for the movie. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and it was a, it was a nice surprise. Yes, yeah, Scott, you make a great point though. Um, it's a Hollywood movie about the theater. And on, on one level, the plot is really just about a bunch of actors and the writers and the directors and trying to make it uh, in that world. But could this film, instead of being about Broadway, be a film about what it what it takes to be successful in Hollywood? Like, why not make a film about the film industry? I think that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the answer to it. Scott, I don't know if you have anything else to... I don't know if you have more insight into that one. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, but I can talk about, you know, sort of... You, you, you originally asked about the male supporting performances, and I think that for me... Um, the standout one is, you know, the Oscar winning performance by George Sanders as Addison. I think that this is a really interesting, his, his performance, I think is a really interesting uh, commentary on the role that men play in women's like rise to success, at least in this time in history. You know, while we're comparing it to, to recent movies that we've talked about, Scott, I think Mary Queen of Scots is another example of a movie that, um, you know, showed the way that men try to interfere with, uh, you know, any women, any, any woman who has an ambition of achieving any sort of power. Um, and I think Addison here, yeah, he comes off as like, oh, he's, you know, this kind of witty, cynical guy, you know, you can he's, the, he's like a lovable rogue until the end when, you know, he there's a really dark side of him that comes out, uh, you know, in that scene in the dressing room with Eve, where he basically says that, you know, you are you belong to me like and no one else like you are mine and, you know, physically grabs her and everything. Um, and I think, you know, so much of this movie is about, uh, you know, the relationship between women um, and, you know, what women have to do to rise to the top. 
Uh, and I, so I think it's interesting that they do, you know, that, that, that character, I think is the most clear example of the role that men play in this process. Jeremy, what do you think? Um, I think that the scene at towards the end of the film, when Addison is in the uh, hotel room with Eve is a really interesting one, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we see a really sharp, like big reveal scene by Addison where he's, you know, sort of explaining the whole plot of how Eve made up her background, lied her way to the top. And now uh, Addison is going to blackmail her going forwards uh, to control her and to use her star power for his own gain. Um, second, it's kind of interesting that Eve in this scene admits to Addison that she's sleeping with Lloyd, the screenwriter. And it's not really clear why she does that. And Addison totally plays on that weakness, on that mistake, and says, who do you think I am? Uh, Do you think I'm a rube just like the rest of them? And he totally catches her. Uh, And then third, I think that that bedroom scene is really powerful. And it makes Addison out to be a real monster in this film. Uh, You know, even worse than Eve, uh, like the way that it is staged with Addis, uh, with with Eve crying, flailing on the bed, and Addison uh, sort of looming above her. Like I almost thought that was going to turn into a a rape scene, and it's more just like a, an allusion to a rape scene. But it really feels very uh, dark. Mm-hmm. How he, you know, says, "I will control you. You are mine." And then it leads to her crying in the bedroom. Um, I think we are supposed to think about rape in that moment. Definitely. I mean, especially if, if sexual assault and, and, and rape are about power and, and exert and asserting power over another person. I think that's, I mean, that's, we're, we're getting all of that without the actual act itself. And so the spirit of the scene and the spirit of that, of the events that are happening on the screen, I think totally fit in with that view of, of the plot and, and, and what's happening in that scene. Yeah, I agree. That's definitely a deliberate illusion. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, George Sanders, Oscar winning performance. To me, you know, I always felt like he was a pretty menacing, sour fellow, so to speak. Uh, And then, of course, you know, you dial it up to 11 when you get to that hotel room scene and you really understand what he's capable of, just like in there are moments what you learn what Eve is capable of. But, of course, I think that there's a lot of implications for what this means to Jeremy, something that you mentioned way back at the beginning when we started talking about this movie was about what it means for a woman to be successful. And then also Scott to what I think what you mentioned earlier, but it also might've been Jeremy about how, you know, what the, what the male role is for this in this process as well. And how, yes, you know, there are men who are successful, but they're also, you know, behind the women who are successful. You often, you often will have men who are trying to stake a claim to the success that women are having or kind of assert some sort of responsibility um, or credit for them going as far as they have. And, you know, maybe Addison doesn't do that publicly, but he certainly is saying that privately that, you know, you, you could be nothing if not for me, because not because I got you to where you were, although I certainly helped you, but that if you decided to go against me, I could end your career. I mean, ultimately saying, I think that is ultimately what he's saying. And I find that that power dynamic is such an integral part to, you know, the final act of this movie and how that develops and, 
And I think that, you know, you, you could, I mean, I don't know how much I agree with this, but just thinking about if you can, if you then take that comparison and then compare it to what's happening to Betty, uh, Betty Davis and, and her role as Margot Shanning, what you have is not that she's succumbing to the control of men, but she's ultimately just deciding to accept the fame and response the the fame and the notoriety that she's gained from her performances so far and then settle down and stop trying to play the game and, you know, and, and do, do, and do those things. Not that Addison, I mean, I, I don't mean, I have no, we have no idea what her relationship is with Addison. It seems pretty, pretty sour and whatever and whatnot through the few interactions that they have through the movie. But it's very interesting to see how the interactions we see between Addison and Eve compared to the interactions we see between Addison and Margot. Yeah. Yeah, quite a few other men in this movie. We've talked about George Sanders. I, you know, there is also Gary Merrill. There's also Hugh Marlowe, Gary Merrill playing uh, the on-screen lover of Betty Davis. They also got married in real life shortly after this movie came out. So a little fun, little fun fact there. Wow, there you go. Yeah, so their chemistry was literally electric on set. So there you go. But yeah, no, so you have Bill Sampson who plays the director. Lloyd Richards is the... Uh, is the writer here played by Hugh Marlowe. The I think these performances, it's like in a different movie, these performances might be considered top, you know, top notch and best of the best in terms of performances. But when you're put on screen next to three uh, iconic performances now, even 60, 70 years removed, it's hard to compete. I think these performances were good, but ultimately there's a reason why we're talking about the other ones and not these. Uh, I think the performance for Hugh Marlowe is maybe a little bit limited. There's only so much he can do with the role. It's not that he lacks any sort of character development, but so much time and energy is put into the development of other characters and understandably. So for the plot, it makes a lot of sense, but for bill, I really, I mean, this is a character that I really like. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to think of bill for the first half hour, 45 minutes of this movie, but he's a character that really grew on me, especially after he returned from Hollywood and someone who I think really is different from how a lot, like a lot of men are often portrayed in movies that I have watched from this uh, period of time. And Scott, I'd love Scott and Jeremy both. I'd love to get your opinions on what you thought of not only Gary Merrill's performance, but Bill as a character and how that maybe plays on, you know, we've already talked about stereotypes, but how this maybe goes against stereotypes of men of this time and, and how it, this role ultimately fits into the, to the narrative of the movie. Yeah, I will say I, I do really like the scene where he sort of turns the tables on Eve uh, she she mm. tries to sort of come on to him and he says something to her like, no, I like you, you don't understand. Like I go after the things that I, you know, want or whatever. They don't go after me. Um, and so I that was kind of because I think you're right. I think his performance and really the two characters of Bill and Lloyd are kind of overshadowed by a lot of the other performances and characters. But I think that really was the standout scene for him, for me, for him, uh, because I think uh it showed that he's he's wise to what's going on uh, here. And, you know, he he while he, he may be on sort of the fringes for a lot of the movie and kind of playing second fiddle to Margot, um, you know, he's as clever as the rest of them. And uh, he sees right through Eve. So I really liked that scene. Another great scene by Bill is when Margot is having a temper tantrum after Eve performs with her understudy for the first time. Uh, Margot is very upset. And uh, Bill and Margot are left on stage. Bill grabs Margot and says, shake out of it. 
you're a beautiful, intelligent, successful woman, you know, stop being so upset at Eve. And it's really refreshing to see, you know, a boyfriend in this role turning to his girlfriend and saying, you know, you're really successful. You're really great. You're really smart. Like, I expect more from you. Snap out of it. You know, be mature about this. I really like yeah. that. Yeah, for me, it, it just seemed like I, you know, from the first interaction that we get with with Bill in the movie in Margot's dressing room right after, you know, Karen brings Eve back to to meet all of them. I, I feel like I developed a certain set of expectations for what Bill's character was going to be. And I think throughout the rest of the movie, I found those expectations completely subverted by what actually happens. And I just really that ultimately made me really love this character. My expectations were for him to be something closer to an Addison, right? Like someone who would like take credit for Margot's success and not necessarily put her down, but assert his dominance over her. That that was like my expectations for Bill. And I think almost at no point in the movie does he ever do that. And I found that really pleasantly pleasantly surprising. Yeah, true. He really does build her up uh, and is a supportive boyfriend and then uh, fiance. So I don't, there are, I mean, there is Celeste Holm, Karen Richards, who we haven't spoken about, probably worth spending just a few minutes giving, giving some credit where credit is due here before we move on to talking about some of the other themes of this film. Karen is a real catalyst to the action of the film. Two times she does a crucial accent that lets Eve advance her career. She first lets Eve into the dressing room to meet Margot for the first time, and then she crucially decides to let the gas out of the car, stranding Margot from uh, making it back in time for her Broadway uh, acting job, and gives Eve a chance to uh, assume the leading role as as the understudy. Uh, so Karen is pretty integral to the plot, and then I think that she also has an interesting role as like a non-working woman in this film, right? She's an interesting contrast to Eve and Margot, who are, you know, career-first women. Margot, uh, I'm sorry, Karen is instead uh, presenting herself as the wife of the famous screenwriter and the friend of the famous actress. Uh, So she's another view of what it means to be a woman who doesn't work. Yeah. And in the end, I think, you know, she's just another character who ends up getting manipulated by Eve because Eve, you know, through her, the performance that she puts on for much of the movie uh, is able to get uh, Karen to talk to Max Fabian about getting her that initial audition uh, or initial role as as Margot's understudy, uh, which leads to that audition. But then in the end, uh, Eve ends up sleeping with Karen's husband. So, uh, you know, I, I think uh, she's just another example of someone who falls prey to, um, you know, the plot that Eve is putting on in this movie. And I think the performance didn't stand out a ton for me. I think the character does kind of exist in a lot of places just to serve the plot. But I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I think this character doesn't stand out for a lot of reasons. And I think it all, a lot of it ties back to how this character I, I think is intended to be maybe a lot of what we consider like the, uh, at least of the time, the typical stereotype of, Oh, non-working uh, woman, you know, husband of someone who, you know, is, is the primary 
uh, breadwinner of, of the home. And, you know, she doesn't need to do anything. She can live her life, be domestic, et cetera, et cetera, and just support her husband and not and not have too much um, proactiveness and, and control of and dominance over her own life. She's such a passive player at this plot. Like listening to both of you talk about her, all I can think of is that she ultimately has so little agency in this narrative. She, she, she you know, she is convinced by Eve to, you know, let me quote unquote convince like out of kindness and also, you know, Eve insinuating, but never explicitly asking, you know, she introduces, she introduces Eve to the inner circle of Margot, you know, without, you know, without really asking, but you know, through threats, she, like she passively gives Eve the opportunity to, I mean, she actively chooses to let the gas out of the car, but passively has presented Eve with an opportunity to uh, become a famous actress, essentially. And I think that that lack of agency and that idea of someone almost being a, a you know, the marionette behind the puppet that is Karen, I think is such an interesting dynamic to compare, not only just in terms of like their roles in the plot, but, you know, who they are as people when you look at Eve, when you look at Margot, and then when you look at Karen. And I think that although Karen doesn't necessarily do anything to become the quote unquote hero or the villain in this movie, she's just there. And I think that's a statement about uh, the maybe the stereotypical kind of woman of this day and age and how if you are that kind of person, you're just not very memorable and you're just not. And, and you and you ultimately lack agency in a way and so for a movie in the night in you know in 1950 I think it's great to uh, have this role uh, presented next to roles with people who have a great deal more agency and have more control over their lives even if there are also question marks around their own agency and, and their own reputation and um, credit for gaining the fame that they've gained yeah I think that's a good point. Awesome, Jeremy. So I, you know, I told you before we recorded that I was going to let you drive the conversation of where we go with the plot and with the themes of this movie. Uh, any, any one that you want to start with, and, and we, we of course can just see where the conversation takes us. So probably three themes that I would love to talk about: one, narration; uh, second, uh, what it means to be a woman who's working and successful and ambitious; and then third, uh, LGBT. Uh, analysis or perspective on this film. So let's start with the narration. What did you guys think about uh, the narration that is, I think, fair to say, very heavy throughout this film? There is a lot of telling when uh, merely showing could be done. Uh, did you guys like it, dislike it? I'll start. I'll start because I think Scott probably hated it because uh, he hates voiceover. But <laughs> um, I think that uh, it's interesting because of the gender dynamics that we've been talking about, that we have a male who is narrating this story that is largely about females. Um, and I, I think for me, it really just speaks to the time that... A lot of voiceover Karen too, though. At what, po when, what point is that? Sorry, I'm having trouble recalling. Right before Karen uh, calls up Eve and says, I'm going to let the gas... Well, we, we don't actually see her say this, but we see her make the phone call. Uh, Karen is saying to Eve, I'm going to let the gas out of the tank. She does a big voice. Mm. Uh, she does a big voiceover where she's thinking to herself, I'm going to do this plot. I'm going to do this scheme. And we also see, uh, we also see Margot at one point uh, doing a voiceover while she's getting ready for the party saying to herself, Oh, this is going to be a tense party. Are you all right there? 
Addison does the voiceover that right. starts off the film. So he the uh, I guess principal narrator of the film in that. Yeah, way. I mean, I think, and I think that's the thing that stands out to me. Uh, again, you have uh, a man telling a story about what should be, you know, a story about women's success, um, and you can just never really shake that male role uh, in the story. And I think that you know that's symbolic of that. Scott, did you hate it? <laughs> well, okay. So, I mean, there are parts of it that I that I don't feel are necessary. What I would call like true voiceover. There are just so few times in films where I ever think it's necessary. And but but the but the monologues, I don't have a problem with those, which I think is some of what we're also calling voiceover here. Or am I wrong about that? Yeah, it seems like it. Right, like I don't remember there being. I remember a monologue, but not a voiceover in the scenes that you're talking about, where like she's like talking about how she's going to do this act or talking about the party. I mean, I could just be misremembering it, but uh, at least in situations where a mono, like a mo- like an internal monologue, even if it ends up being voiceover, I'm like more okay with those than you know something like at the beginning or the end where you have. I think it's Addison is the one just like voiceover narrating, and you have Eve. This night was all about Eve. I just think that's like, I don't know if that's necessary. I think you could literally have the exact same scene with no voiceover and understand perfectly exactly what every character in the room thinks of Eve. And so I'm not sure how valuable that narration is, although I I understand the maybe the attraction of a filmmaker to add in voiceover where, you know, there aren't any lines and there's just a long period of time that's just a pan of a room or, you know, this ceremony that's going on where you also have this guy talking in the background, but, you know, clearly it's not important at all what he's saying. He's, I mean, they make a joke about how, you know, actor or like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, the, you know, X kind of person who's speaking right now loves to hear himself talk. So it's going to be a while or whatever. So I don't know. I'm, I'm like hot and cold on, on this on this movie's quote unquote voiceover. Yeah, I think ages pretty poorly uh, and is for me the most noticeable weakness of the film. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a sign of the times a little bit because I feel like a lot of movies of that era did have that that same sort of narration, uh, you know, that you're talking about with like, and this night was all about Eve, like very almost like you're reading a novel. So I think that this movie is really impressive, especially for a film from 1950, and how sympathetic it is to the struggles of being a a woman, particularly an aging woman and particularly an ambitious woman. I think that there's a really interesting line of dialogue after Margot is stuck in the car, unable to make it for Broadway. And she says something along the lines of, you know, every woman, regardless of what her job is, regardless of what her career is, can't stop being a woman, can't give up on the job of being a woman. And she realizes that, she can't, uh, you know, in order to be a full person, uh, because of the way society treats her, because of how society places women, uh, you know, she needs to deal with her femininity. She can't run away uh, and just be, you know, a pure career. She has to exist in a world. And I think it's really tragic in a way. I think the writer and director of this film really uh, is very sympathetic to how hard it is to uh, exist in the theater uh, as a woman. Yeah, and another line I think that stands out is 
a line that Karen has to her husband about how she she uh you know developed her cynicism from like the time that she discovered she was like not a boy or she was different from boys. Um, and so I think that speaks to, you know, again, sort of the overarching theme I've already kind of mentioned, but like that the, if you're a woman in this space, the things that you have to do, um, the things that society makes you do um, in order to, you know, achieve a position of success are like kind of despicable. It's such a, I mean, I feel like we've, we've referenced it so many times that I, I just don't want to repeat myself, uh, you know, over the course talking about the different characters, et cetera. But the idea that, a, you know, a character here or one of, one of these people has to always has to be dealing not only with whether or not they are still famous and clinging on to their fame, but that they have to make sacrifices that maybe men in the same industry, although we don't get a, a direct comparison necessarily. Of course, you do have Bill. And 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 Lloyd to reference, although it's obviously they're not act, you know, they're not actors. They're you know, they're directors and a playwright. But it, it's interesting to say, like, clearly someone like Margot has to make more sacrifices than Bill does or Lloyd does. I mean, Lloyd is married and Bill is chasing after Margot. You know, clearly Margot has to fend off these advances to further her career. And when she ultimately decides, you know what, I'm no longer going to put off uh, this aspect of my life. Uh, at the you know at the benefit of my career, I'm gonna instead sacrifice my career to the benefit of my personal life. You know, ultimately there could be some statement about she's happier because she you know you, she had her time in the spotlight and it was just becoming too difficult for her to balance those two things. And maybe that's a maybe some people might have a problem with that statement about the movie. But I think that it, it is definitely an indictment of the way the industry treats women versus men, or, or what the or what the industry requires of women versus men in order that she has to make such sacrifices to be successful. And then when you look at Eve, she's someone who you don't necessarily see her making sacrifices, but that she has to be so single-minded in her ambition, something that both of you have mentioned repeatedly and I think is spot on, that she has to be so single-minded in her ambition in order to become successful. And she has to sac- and in, in, in that ambition, she has to sacrifice you know, positive relationships that she might have developed. Not necessarily, you know, uh, relationships in the sense of getting married, but like relationships with Karen, relationships with Margot, relationships with, uh, I mean, you could question whether or not she ever really had a meaningful relationship with Lloyd or Bill, but the, I think the point still stands that in order for her to become, to rise to prominence, she has to put off any idea of making friends because it's so, she has to be so cutthroat to break into the scene and then stay relevant. The last word I want to say on this point is one of my favorite lines of dialogue in the film is Margot says, Bill's 32. He looks 32. Five years ago, he looked 32. And 20 years from now, he'll look 32. I hate men, which I really think sets up the difference between men and women in that women are expected to look a certain way and not act nakedly ambitious. But men are allowed to age gracefully and uh, ambition looks a totally different, uh, takes on a totally different uh, tone when uh, men are acting out in an ambitious way. And then uh, if if you guys want to switch to the final theme that I wanted to talk about, let's talk about a kind of uh, heterosexual versus homosexual uh, LGBTQ analysis of this film. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. I think one really interesting analysis I've seen online of this film is a kind of LGBTQ critique of the film. 
And I think it's really interesting. I think the, the, the critique basically says the film is setting up the four main characters of Margot and Bill, uh, Lloyd and Karen as, uh, you know, idealistic heterosexual couples. Uh, Eve's real great sin in this film is trying to break up those two heterosexual couples by using her sexual manipulation, right? She tries to sleep with Lloyd, she tries to sleep with Bill, and she tries to break up these two marriages. Uh, and they're, you know, these four main characters are kind of the, the positive protagonists of the film. Then in contrast, we have Eve and Addison as the two great villains of the film. Eve is shown later in the film in one noticeable shot, uh, walking up the stairs to her bedroom, arm in arm with a woman, which, uh, you know, from the perspective of 1950, that is basically a giveaway that Eve is supposed to be a, a, a lesbian uh, character. And then also Addison, I think, in the way that he uh, acts out the character, is kind of flamboyant. And he is, uh, you know, a, an older man who is a film critic, uh, you know, doesn't have a, a wife or a girlfriend. So I think we are also supposed to believe that he is gay. So what you have in this film is uh, two gay characters who are cynical and manipulative, uh, set up against four happy heterosexual uh, characters who just want to, you know, continue to be friends. And I think this is a really interesting way to see the film. I don't think that I really engaged with the film previously through this lens. And I think it's a pretty interesting critique. And it makes me feel uh, kind of unsettled because in one way, this film's pretty ambitious and progressive and that it says, wow, it's really hard for women to be uh, successful given all that's stacked up against them. But then on the other hand, uh, the film is saying, oh, no, let's really lean into traditional sexual norms. Let's really lean into, uh, you know, this vision of what it means to be a, a good person. What do you guys think? Yeah, I thought, you know, I also saw this critique online and I thought it was a really interesting, interesting one. And for me, it's not one that I necessarily engage. I like I didn't I wasn't thinking about this and it didn't occur to me over the course of the film, at least in, in these kind of direct terms. And to me, it, honestly, once I read this criticism and, and, you know, to hear you describe it and lay it out fully on the podcast here, it's something that it, I, for me, it feels pretty hard to deny. I know that that Mankiewicz has, has pretty adamantly denied it that he um, but I, I don't know if it's uh, if that if that plays if that plays well and you know whether it was in intentional or unintentional it's hard to imagine it being unintentional but unintentional or intentional or unintentional this does lay out a, a pretty clearly that you know these two you know even if we're even if even if we say that oh it's not clear whether Eve and Addison are homosexual though I agree that those they you know that one shot of her climbing up the stairs and then also I think there are other shots here and there too where that might imply uh, uh, Eve's sexuality and Addison's maybe a little bit ambiguous but even leaving it ambiguous I think as, as when when other characters are perceived so explicitly as heterosexual I think that it definitely is it has to be something that was 
it, I mean, what, I don't even know what the right word is. It, like, it has to be something I that to be intentional because they do have that very clear shot of Eve walking up the stairs with mm-hmm. uh, a woman. Yeah, so and even intentional that Eve is a lesbian. Yeah, and even but yeah, and I think that that and so when you when you layer over that commentary onto the happenings of the movie, you know, Mankiewicz can probably say, "Oh, like I'm not anti." Uh, gay or like I'm, I have no problem with ho- the homosexual community. I mean, he can say that, right? But when your character, well, like your two characters that are quote unquote villains, or or you know the the very aggressively ambitious and mean spirited critic, uh, you know, when you have those two characters are are the people who are homosexual in your film, or at least ambiguously, uh, or at least characters with ambi- ambiguous sexuality. It's hard to say then that there isn't some sort of coloring of or commentary happening around the, you know, the, the benefits and we'll say um, the pros and cons of being of heterosexuality versus homosexuality in the eyes of Mankiewicz. And to me, I also read an interesting comparison where like, whereas like homosexuality was often linked to communism uh, and what some, what's something called the cold wars, like lavender scare, which I'm not familiar with. I'll admit this is just something that I've, that I've been reading online. And that this that maybe there is some implication there of like anti of being anti-communist for me at least with the context of the present day of course communism and the Cold War is not something that's top of any of our minds and so it, it I often well when I read these two critiques I was like oh interesting about communism but also like the homosexuality is just so on the nose and the commentary around that just felt so on the nose in retrospect. It'd be interesting to then go back to the movie and rewatch that with all of that in mind and, and see if I actively viewed that that way or rather than just passively um, applying that that sort of narrative analysis to the plot. Because I agree with it. I think that it's hard for me to deny it when I think back and after I read the arguments for it. Yeah, I mean, there, you could also layer on a class analysis to this film because uh, Margot, Bill, Karen, and Lloyd are all rich and well off, and then Eve is coming from uh, you know no money, and there's also the character of Birdie who's not coming from any money. So the four uh, protagonists who are well off are kind of lazy and easy to be manipulated, whereas Eve and Birdie have to work hard. Notably, early on in the film, Birdie sees right through Eve uh, and doesn't. Uh, isn't so easily manipulated by Eve's uh, fake charm. So I think there's a lot of ways you could take this basic story of struggle and ambition and changing places and layer on a lot of different analyses, whether it's LGBTQ, communism, uh, another kind of class reading, uh, you know, just a, a women, uh, uh, you know, a, a gender perspective. It's It's a basic conflict that can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. I think that, yeah, so I, I would definitely like to rewatch it with this in mind because, you know, I think to all of our point, none of us really picked up on this when we first saw the movie. And at, yes, I think it, it's, it's very possible that there is a message there and that it is intentional. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, I feel like the fact that the things that we took away from the movie, um, were the really progressive ideas about gender um, and, you know, the representation of women in this space. Um, I think, especially when you consider the time period in which this movie came out, I don't think, of course, that doesn't excuse the 
you know, anything that it may say about homosexuality. But I think that it do, it's not it doesn't stand out in the movie and it doesn't really change the way that I watch the movie ultimately. I also do think that part of the movie, though, like part of the reason why I I can only speak for myself here, but why I may not have initially picked up on this or at least have, you know, didn't have it rise to the top of my mind. I feel like I only passively observed it was the fact that, I mean, at the end of the day, my, like, I, I am, you know, I identify as being straight and my, I do have stereotypes of people like, oh, like this person is straight. That is like, that is what I think of them. And so to, to have that norm set, like kind of set as my standard as well, even though I, you know, as even as often as I may try to push back against that own standard that I, that or that own norm that I've developed, you know, that cultural norm. I think that that could be an element of it, you know, with a different norm and a different standard, this could be something that much more, so that I much more quickly pick up on. And I imagine that viewers have much more quickly picked up on in the past. I think that's a good point. All right, Jeremy, anything else you want to talk about or, uh, but I think the kind of the final thing that I, I mean, I have one more thing to talk about, but just want to check that if there's any other things that you'd like to talk about for the plot and the themes. I said, I'm all set. Awesome. All right, guys. Um, you know, in our normal wrap up, of course, we, uh, Jeremy, you'll be familiar as you listen to the podcast. We talk about our favorite scene from the movie and also give it a score. I think probably not necessary to give this one a score. So why not we? Ta- why don't we talk about our favorite scenes from this movie? Jeremy, our guest should go first. What was your favorite scene from All About Eve? My favorite scene from All About Eve is when Margot and Bill are arguing before the start of birthday party incoming party there's just some really witty repartee back and forth between the two of them really strong acting you don't see scenes like that anymore the way that people talk in this incredibly well scripted sharp is something that i really miss about 1950s black and white and it's a reason why i love this film so much scott what about you yeah, for me, yeah, I think we've talked about a lot of the scenes and moments that I love, but just one other line which stood out to me in, you know, as, as, as we've said, the, a script that is full of memorable lines, I think, um, in the theater scene uh, when uh, Lloyd says something to Margot like, uh, you know, you'd be better off working with these playwrights. They've been dead for 300 years. And she says, all playwrights should be dead for 300 years. Uh, and I just really liked that line. Yeah, for me, it's going to be something else that's referencing the script, of course, because it's the total highlight of this film. And that is uh, the scene with it's the party for Bill coming back from Hollywood, his birthday party as well. It's at I believe it's at Margot's house, maybe or Margot and Bill's house. It, to me, it was it was unclear exactly whose house it was. But the point remains the same. And, and Jeremy, you mentioned it, that iconic line, uh, you know, hang on, it's going to be it's going to be a bumpy night. I think it. It's such an iconic line and that speaks to the, you know, the entire scenes wit and uh, the sharpness of the script in that scene in particular, you know, there's other lines from Margot that talk about, Oh, play the song again. He's like, it's the fifth time. Then play it for a fifth time. (laughs) And like, and and, you know, it's just, it's such, it's just such good writing. And I thoroughly enjoyed the script. Yeah. All right, guys, I think that should just about do it for our discussion of the timeless classic all about Eve. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be quizzing Jeremy on some of his movie history and preferences. We'll be right back.
Welcome back for part two of today's special episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, way back on our very first pilot episode of the podcast, episode zero, we walked through 10 questions that you had written up about for people to learn a little bit about our movie history and our movie preferences. Today, we're going to give Jeremy the honor of answering those exact same 10 questions. So I'll turn things over to you to give uh, Jeremy his questions. Yeah, you know, as you said, we did this on the first episode, and then we sort of reprised it on our first anniversary episode with some different questions. And I, you know, I, I really enjoy doing this. So I think you had a good idea of, of asking Jeremy, ha- having us ask Jeremy these questions and, uh, you know, hopefully do this with future guests as well. But uh, Jeremy, we'll go ahead and start out with the first question on the list, which is what actor would you want to play you in a movie about your life? I think that I have a fantasy of a young Aaron Eckhart playing me in a film. Uh, I just loved uh, Thank You for Smoking, Batman. Uh, He's so charming. But realistically, it would probably be more like Jesse Eisenberg rather than someone uh, like Aaron Eckhart. So I'm going to go with Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah, that, uh, there always is to this question. There is an element of wish fulfillment. I feel like, like who who would you want, like in a dream world? But then realistically, it's probably not going to be that person. I know I did the, I think the exact same thing when uh, when we talked about this question. So it's funny to hear you do the same thing. But Jesse Eisenberg, great pick. No, there's no wish fulfillment whatsoever when I say Leonardo DiCaprio will be my actor <laughs> in, in my movies. So sorry guys. Yeah, it's definitely Ryan Gosling for me. <laughs> Um, Wait, which Ryan Gosling though? Oh, I don't know. I guess first man Ryan Gosling. I don't know. <laughs> Dead inside Ryan Gosling. Okay, yeah. Cool. <laughs> uh, second question, Jeremy, going along with that first question, who would you want to direct that movie? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say Woody Allen, but <laughs> I kind of want to say Woody Allen. So I'm going to go with that. His uh, sort of neurotic Jewish uh, directing you know, the, the real emphasis on writing and comedy is something that I like a lot. Yeah, his brand of humor is very iconic. And uh, yeah, obviously, there's uh, some PC stuff to talk about with him nowadays. But uh, I think that that's still a solid pick um, in spite of that. Um, third, who is an actor? This is one of my favorite questions, personally. Uh, who is an actor that not enough people are talking about right now? Scott and I had some good answers for this last year. Yeah, um, I just finished Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is, I think, a popular TV show, but not as popular as it deserves to be. So I really love Rachel Bloom these days. I think she's a really talented actress, writer. Um, I'm not sure if she did any directing as well, but really love Rachel Bloom. More people should be talking about her. Interesting. Yeah, I'm familiar with her name, but only in the context of that show, which I have never actually watched. Um, and it looks like most of her work has uh, been in TV, but uh, you know, hopefully we'll we'll see her in some movies nowadays. I guess if the show's coming to an end, because yeah, I mean, I I have I have heard people speak highly of her in this role, so would love to see her on the big screen someday. Uh, you know, for us to talk about on the show. You're gonna hear her voice later this year in the Angry Birds movie too. So uh, I I oh. won't be hearing her voice because you're gonna be seeing the Angry Birds movie too, which I don't. Yeah, I mean. She's silver, Scott. I mean, you got to go to hear it. Jason Sudeikis and Le- Leslie Jones, Bill Hader, Aquafina, Sterling K. Brown. This voice act, this voice cast is actually really good. I'm not caught up in the Angry Birds cinematic universe, but uh, maybe I'll have to do that. There's time, yeah, Scott. There's, there's time. always time. Um, okay, Jeremy, fourth question. Uh, what's a scene from a movie that has a killer use of music? I, I think I'm going to answer 
pretty literally to this question and say, hip to be square from American Psycho. Classic. When we see uh, some chainsaw murders to yes. uh, hip to be square song. Yeah, that's an absolutely iconic scene and a great pick. Really, the this use of the song really uh, gets at what uh, the movie is saying about you know sort of yuppie culture and everything, which I think the movie had. If you've never seen that movie, listeners, it has some really interesting things to say and is a really provocative and interesting movie that I think holds up really well. So uh, definitely check it out. Um, but yeah, that's a great pick. Uh, okay, number five. This is just kind of a fun question. Uh, what movie would you show on a loop to break down someone that you are torturing for information? Um, I would have to pick the worst movie of all time, Freddy Got Me. Oh my, yes. Um, I saw that the movie once, and it was uh, torture just the first time. The movie so bad that Eminem made fun of it in uh, The Real Slim Shady. Um, yeah, I, I've never, uh, of course, never seen that movie, but I'm familiar with it and some of the like grotesque things that goes on go go on in it. Uh, you mentioned Roger Ebert earlier. I think I remember seeing or reading his review or something of this movie. And, uh, that really told me all that I needed to know about <laughs> whether I should see this or not. Um, but you know, I guess Tom Green is still out there doing something nowadays. Um, but yeah, this movie did not hold up. Um, okay. Number six, uh, you can answer all about Eve if you want, but you can also go in a di different direction if you want. What's a best picture, best picture winner that actually deserved to win best picture? We ask because the movies usually don't that win. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all about Eve did deserve to win best picture and it did. Uh, so I think that would be a fair pick, but uh, I'll be a little bit more controversial. Cause I think that's where this question is uh, supposed to be headed. And I'd say, uh, I think Forrest Gump deserved to win in 1994 over Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption. Oh, very controversial. But at the same time, this year exposing my number one movie weakness here. Like I've talked about it on the show before, but I've never seen Forrest Gump. And that's probably the, in terms of like the movie that I should should have seen that I haven't, that's probably like number one on the list for me. And it's kind of, you know, just become a bit now that I'm never actually going to watch it, but I will watch it someday at the same time, knowing what I do about this movie. I can't imagine that I'm going to like it more than Pulp Fiction or Shawshank, which are probably two movies in my top 50 of all time. But, you know, I, I respect the opinion and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who would agree with you because it is, at least my understanding is that it's a very, you know, crowd-pleasing uh, movie. It's the whole story of America as told through Tom Hanks. That, I mean, when, when you describe it like that, I don't know if I want to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen it, right, Scott? <laughs> no, I haven't. No. You haven't seen it either? Oh, man, okay. Yeah. Jeremy, as you know, Scott's answer will be Spotlight. Spotlight is a movie that won Best Picture that deserved it over all others that year. So That, would, that is my answer, yes. Um, so first of all, I don't... Spotlight is a controversial Best Picture win. And second, I'm shocked that neither of you guys have seen Forrest Gump. So, Well, I don't uh, like Tom Hanks that much, so I'm not like going out of my way to complete Tom Hanks' like, filmography. So. I, I don't either, but at the same time, it's his most iconic role. It's his, like one of the most iconic movies of the 90s. It is kind of embarrassing that I haven't seen it, and I fully admit that. Now, does that mean that I'm going to go turn around tonight and watch it? No, probably not. But, uh, you know, at some point in my life, I will be in a situation where there will be just no way out of watching this movie. And at that point, I will just surrender. But that time is not now. Okay, Jeremy, next question. Uh, what movie makes you laugh no matter how many times you've seen it? Um, Dodgeball. I really <laughs> love Dodgeball. I think that uh, 
you know, in some ways it hasn't aged that well, but uh, it just has so many sort of quotable lines uh, that have really entered mainstream dialogue. Like, that's a bold move, God. Uh, uh, you know, if you can dodge a ball, you can dodge yeah. traffic. <laughs> um, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. That's a, that's one. Too. Oh, yeah. I got the line backwards, but uh, yeah. dodgeball, hilarious movie. Uh, you know, can watch it so many times and still laugh. I think I think you're understating how much it hasn't aged well. I think that if that movie really is today, <laughs> it would not sit well with people. It's very offensive. Yeah, but I think for me, like, I'm not a huge fan of those types of comedies from that era. Um, but that is one that definitely has some memorable moments in it. So, yeah, it may not age well, but honestly, probably better than a lot of the big studio comedies that they put out nowadays. Um, mean Girls for me. You mentioned it earlier, Jeremy, but Mean Girls is it always makes me laugh. Yeah, Airplane is mine. Um, mm, I, good one. You know, lots of good options out there. But uh, okay, this is a very tough question, but it might become a little easier the next question uh, in a couple weeks when Detective Pikachu comes out. But you can't answer it um, forecasting that it's going to be a good movie. But what's a video game based movie that does not suck? Uh, Very hard question. Yeah. Uh, A little bit of a loophole answer here. I really liked Wreck It Ralph, which is not a uh, movie based on a video game, but a video games uh so wreck it ralph john c Riley is a really good time in that movie heartwarming disney film um not my favorite movie but i did like it no i think that's probably the best possible answer for this question really um that i i really do love wreck it ralph and i'm kind of ashamed that i still haven't seen the sequel that came out last year uh but yeah like in terms of uh you know, it may not be based on an actual video game, but in terms of references and gags based on video games, like this movie is chock full of them and they're all really clever uh, in a way that really no other video game based movie has been. Uh, but like I said, maybe Detective Pikachu is the one. You know, I'm inclined to say that De- Detective Pikachu will be the one, but I also think that saying Wreck-It Ralph is a video game movie is the, sem- is the same as saying Ready Player One is a video game movie or a movie based on a video game. Because uh, they're they just have a, they're just chock full of video game references rather than actually being based on a video game. But but they I actually have to sort of play through video game levels, sort of in a, of a sort in Wreck It Ralph. Whereas, and I, you know, to be honest, I think it's it's also true for Ready Player One. It's but it's generous to call Ready Player One a movie. <laughs> no, okay, Scott, your, <laughs> your your hot takes on Ready Player One are like getting worse and worse over time. No, they're really not. <laughs> you're getting more and more upset about the movie. I feel like the longer it's been out. I just don't know why we're still talking about it, but let's let's see talking about it um, and ask maybe the most controversial question on this list, Jeremy. What's the best movie in the Star Wars universe? Start with the beginning. I love A New Hope. I think it's the best uh, Star Wars movie. It introduces so many uh, iconic shots, lines, themes that underpin the entire sci-fi uh you know, film industry, everything that has come after it. Uh, I think A New Hope is a really strong movie and the best in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's a controversial question, but I think you gave the least controversial possible answer because no matter where you stand on, you know, Star Wars movies, which you have people obviously all all over the spectrum, I think pretty much everyone is universal. Uh, I'm not going to say universal, you know, totally universal when you're talking about Star Wars fans. 
But uh, for the most part, everybody loves this first movie. And the Star Wars universe would not be what it was today uh, without this first movie. Maybe that's why I love The Force Awakens so much, because it really just sort of is a more modern retelling of A New Hope. Really? I just I'm really sad that you said the last line that you just said, Scott, because I was about to make a joke about how I thought I thought A New Hope just riffed on uh, Force Awakens. <laughs> I mean, come on. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Stole my joke right out from under me. Yeah, well, there's probably some fanboys out there who actually do think that. Um, who have no- God, I really hope not. <laughs> but yeah, but looking forward to episode nine later this year. That trailer got me hyped during when I saw it during Avengers because that was the first time I'd seen it on the big screen. Okay, final question, Jeremy, and I think we kind of already know the answer. So if you want to pick, if you want to say your number two, you can do that as well. But the last question is, what's your favorite movie of all time? Oh, I, I mean, you're totally right. We already talked about this at length, but my favorite film of all time is All About Eve. Uh, really great movie. Do you have a number two if you had to come up with one on the spot? I'll stick with the theme of classic, great black and white films. I really like Casablanca as well. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, that's, that's more cliche. I like having a favorite movie that most people have not seen. And that's why I say All About Eve is my favorite film. Well, and it is. I mean, yeah, I understand that. And most people haven't seen it for sure. But that is that's what's kind of crazy, because it is like one of the most famous movies from this era. Uh, and it, it's, you know, it's really a shame that it took us so long to see it for the first time and that more people haven't seen it because, uh, you know, just watching the movie, I was you know, a lot of the time I was I was sitting there like, man, you know, I should really watch, you know, more classics. I watched a lot of more classics when I was younger, but and now, you know, with as many new movies as I watch, I don't have a lot of time to fit them in. But I was, you know, sitting there thinking, man, this is great. Like, I should really watch more classics. Um, and I think if people actually took the time to watch them, um, then they would have the same reaction. Because, you know, it may be a, a little bit harder to find movies that hold up, but they're definitely out there. Uh, and, you know, some of my favorite movies still are, you know, classics like Rear Window and 12 Angry Men and stuff like that. I also think it's hard, like classics in, in the way we like we consume entertainment and movies today with net, like primarily through Netflix, I should say. It's really hard to find these these movies on Netflix. That's right? Point, I mean, yeah. there's entire streaming services that are dedicated to classic movies that just probably don't have that many subscribers to them. And so they're, I, I think they're less accessible in the way that we typically consume media. And I think, yes, you've changed as a as an like a person who consumes media in like you're watching primarily new releases. And you mentioned how when you were younger, you know, you used to watch more classics. But when you were younger, relative to watching other movies, it was probably less difficult to watch classics. And so I think that also plays. Yeah, well, I would I would typically just like tape them off of Turner classic movies because that was when I was like first getting into movies. So I was like, I got to watch all these classics and stuff. So I would tape a lot of stuff off of TCM, which obviously is still around nowadays. But you're right, like people, I mean, even, even, you know, between now and when I was younger, like that time when I was taping movies off TV, like people don't sit down and watch movies on TV really anymore because, you know, they have commercials and they're, you know, edited for TV and, you know, more people would probably just much rather go online to a streaming service or, you know, to a more unseemly source and, you know, find that exact same movie. Although TCM's movies are unedited. <laughs> But yeah, so Jeremy, thanks for uh, participating in our little survey there. Hope you uh, enjoy answering those questions. And thank you for uh, for being our guest on the show. We've enjoyed it. Hey, Scott. Um, both Scotts, thank you so much for having me. This was a real blast. Look forward to doing this again next year when you pick all the New York Times picks for <laughs> your Oscar ballot. And we can come up with 10. Scott will have to come up with 10 new questions.
for you. We can watch Casablanca next year. Sure, yeah. I mean, I'd be down. All right, I think that will do it for our special episode of Some Like It's Got. Jeremy, any parting thoughts you'd like to leave us with today? Hey, keep listening and support Some Like It's Got on Patreon. Heck yeah. There you go. All right. As Jerry mentioned, we'd love it if you could support our podcast on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast, and we'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contributed at that $1 level, which is where Jeremy's at. He gets all the episodes early. You can too. Go over to www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Check it out for yourself. But if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us, as well as subscribed and shared, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about a really old movie for a change. Uh, That's something that we really enjoyed. For Scott Harvey and Jamie Rubel, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.